Colter Nuanas from ESPN Montana here at the M Store. Proud to present our Nuanas Now podcast each and every day, available on all of your various podcast hosting platforms. One of their awesome partners, a guy that really is uh, helping spread the word about the M Store, is Grizz All American Junior Bergen. What's up, man? Thanks for coming in. Yes, thank you for having me. First of all, you got a cool t shirt. What's it like being on a t shirt? You're a kid from Billings, Montana, so that, yeah. might, that must be kind of surreal knowing there's a t shirt of you at the M Store. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I went to a couple basketball games back home. And uh, I saw some kids running around with I their love shirt it. on. And it was really surreal. It was a cool moment, cool experience for sure. Uh, that's so cool. You guys do such a good job of embracing how much the community loves you. But when people are looking up to you like they do, I mean, they think, I mean, you're the man right now. for <laughs> <laughs> the University of Montana. What's yeah. that like being a Montana kid? Um, it's different for sure. Um, you know, growing up, you kind of look up to guys like who are in the NFL totally. and stuff like that. But, um, you know, it's just great to have a, a positive influence on these kids' lives. Um, you know, I just wanted to make sure... Uh, I set the example and lead by example and give them someone to look up to. Go check out the M Store. They're located there at the corner of Higgins and Broadway here in the city of Missoula. And you can also visit anytime online, MontanaMStore.com. They have all the latest and greatest, a whole bunch of original Grizz gear. And of course, they have Junior Bergen t-shirts. Junior Bergen, proud partner with the M Store, as well as us here at ESPN Montana. Thanks for swinging by, man. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. The M Store, where they're all Grizz all the time. Blackfoot Communications is actively supporting the communities we serve across Montana and Idaho. We are installing hundreds of miles of fiber in our service territories, increasing the broadband experience in our rural communities. We are delivering remote workforce solutions for our business communities. We are creating new, innovative solutions for our local entrepreneurs and enterprise organizations. Learn how your company can benefit. Call today at 541-5000 or go to blackfootbusiness.com. Blackfoot Communications Connect to more. Your host, or fighting. Also a fight I had to pick with Tommy. And everything in between. Welcome in. It's New Honors Now, 1029 ESPN Missoula. Maybe you're watching in statewide television, SWX Montana TV. Thanks so much for being with us, and thanks for riding home with us on your Tuesday. Chad Dundas in studio with me for the first hour. This is the second time in less than a week, so this will be uh, fun. We're going to recap the awesome UFC events that took place over the weekend and also just talk broadly about our perspective of Missoula and the University of Montana and this community and how it's changed through the overlay of sports, but also just as two guys that have spent time on and off here for most of our lives and uh, important to both of us. So I think it's an interesting conversation to be had because there has been such a stark evolution of Missoula in both really good and in sometimes uh, detrimental ways as well. So we'll We'll talk about all that and more in the first hour. Second hour, uh, I definitely have a bone to pick with Tommy because he's just flat wrong about something, and uh, we're going to get into it a little bit. But we also are going to give you free stuff. It's a Tuesday, so that means it's Tagliari Tuesday. We got $25 gift card to Tagliari Delicatessen, so uh, be sure to stay tuned. We'll do that in the second hour, probably the top of the 5 o'clock hour. We'll give away some Tagliari. Tommy already enjoyed a half a sandwich. We'll give you a little visual display of what he was munching on a little bit earlier. We also have our Treasure State Stars highlighting some of the best amateur performances from across the state of Montana or involving athletes from Montana maybe are competing at the national or international levels. And then, of course, as we do each Tuesday as well, it's the Paddleheads Day Off. That's easy. If you want to know what the Paddleheads schedule is, well, they got games on every day of the week, all summer long, except Tuesdays. They're always off on Tuesdays. That's their road trip day, their getaway day, whatever it might be. So Jeff Safford from the Missoula Paddleheads will swing by as well. What's up, Chad? How you been doing? I'm doing great, man. I must not have screwed up too bad the first time. <laughs> no, you did phenomenal. So, of course, you, you earned an invite back, and it was an awesome uh, set of fights over the weekend, which we will get into in a minute. But I want to ask you something. This is a little spoiler alert, not that you really mind here when you're listening to Sports Talk Radio, but... Uh, one of our Treasure State stars this week is Catherine Burkoff, and she is a phenomenal swimmer out of Missoula Hellgate uh, who is now at NC State, North Carolina State, and she's competing in the U.S. Olympic Trials. But you're a Hellgate alum. Have you followed this story much? Because this is pretty amazing that this young lady, I mean, she, she swam the, the, I think, sixth fastest backstroke time in the world uh, yesterday at the U.S. Olympic Trials. So she's knocking on the door of being on the Olympic team. Yeah, that is totally amazing. I remember... You know, back in the day, working for the Missoulian, covering uh, swimmers coached by Dave Burkoff, and uh, now they got a dynasty 
in that family. So it is incredible that she's been able to reach those heights. You mentioned Dave Burkoff too. He's worth it's worth noting that that is Catherine's father, and Dave was a longtime coach around here in Missoula. But before that. One of the great backstrokers in the history of the United States Olympic team. He, I believe, was on two different gold medal relay teams. I think he also has an individual silver and bronze medals to his credit. So uh, an Olympic medalist right here in our community of Missoula. So we'll get a little bit more into that um, in the second hour. But first, let's talk about these fights on Saturday, Chad. I, I was uh, a little late to the place I was watching the fights at, uh, but I did get to see the last four, so basically the main card. And they were uh, all excellent fights. Uh, but first and foremost, I think that the the one that maybe had the least consequence because it wasn't a title fight, but one maybe that it will be remembered uh, for a long time is the Nate Diaz fight. I lead with Nate Diaz even though he lost the fight. But it was an amazing display. I'm still not sure where I'm at with Nate Diaz in terms of what this is doing to his long-term health because he gets beat up as often as anybody. You can't really knock him out. I don't really know why. He's as tough as it possibly could get. But this was a fight where, I mean, I thought Edwards landed 10 or more what should have been knockout punches, and Nate Diaz has never went down. Yeah, you got to give both of the Diaz brothers a lot of credit in the mixed martial arts world because they are a couple of essentially self-made stars. When you talk about people who achieve that notoriety in the sport, there are people like Conor McGregor and people like Ronda Rousey who achieve greatness and celebrity, but largely through the... Uh, approval of the UFC itself. Like sure. It, it, they have an incredible star-making machine over there now. They get behind a personality, and that person turns out to be as good as they're supposed to be. Uh, they can do a lot to elevate those athletes. The Diaz brothers, Nick and Nate, who have fought in a lot of different organizations for years now, essentially crafted this notoriety by themselves. Like, no one has really ever supported the Diaz brothers as an entity, but just because of their kind of never-say-die attitudes, their uh, they're bad boys, I guess you would say, of the they sport. They, uh, they got the ladies, too, man. I don't know what it is about them, but I've never had uh, several of my friends, um, significant others, were watching the fights with us, and they were all just glued. They just love Nate Diaz. They, I, I don't know what it is, but those guys are just, they're like the crushes of, of the women <laughs> UFC fans. They just have the attitude that seems to appeal to a lot of people in that sport, and they have a really aggressive, high-volume striking style that I think is fun to watch and appeals to fans. And even now that they're both getting to be a little bit long in the tooth, they're both getting up there in age. In fact, myself and my uh, podcast colleague, Ben Folks, like looked at each other when Nate Diaz was announced for this fight against Leon Edwards. And we just instantly felt old that Nate Diaz was announced at being 36 years old because we remember when this guy was a kid. Sure. We remember when he was Nick Diaz's younger brother. That right. used to be the thing that he was. And now he's uh, this big star in the sport. And the kind of niche celebrity that they have is so interesting because as you said, Leon Edwards dominated 24 minutes of this fight. Dominated. Nate Diaz had his moment in the final minute. Almost. Where he almost finished the fight, almost came from behind to win it. And honestly, that's kind of good enough for the people who support the Diaz brothers. Uh, we talked about this on Monday on our podcast that it kind of seems like the Diaz brothers can do this thing as long as they want to. Nate Diaz, one in three in his last four fights. This was his first fight in the UFC since 2019. He was not expected to win, and he did not. But he came in, gave the people what they wanted to see, and everybody loves him for it, man. It is an amazing phenomenon. Chad Dundas joining me in studio. It's Nuanez now on 1029 ESPN Missoula. Chad, I, I, he, he had only been in uh, less than a week ago, so I didn't fully introduce him. So my apologies, Chad. He does uh, is the co-host of the Co-Main Event Podcast, which is one of the main uh, UFC and MMA podcasts going right now. So if you want to go check that out, it's awesome content. So you can rate, review, subscribe. It's available on all your podcast hosting uh, platforms. It, it was amazing, too, because with the way that Nate Diaz takes it on the chin, quite literally, pun intended, it, it is... It's almost startling to watch and sometimes hard to watch because you're like, is this guy ever going to go down? Maybe he's just going to die in the ring. And um, But you mentioned the end of the fight. It was so interesting how he almost got the last laugh. You're sitting there thinking, man, they should call this or Nate should just go down or they should figure out a way to, to make this brutality end. And then he gets to the very end and and the, the dream scenario of outlasting somebody almost comes true and he almost lands one and so I, that's got to be part of the allure of these guys though right it is sort of the the every man's never give up mentality that they encompass yeah for sure and you know as as big of bad boys as they are and as as you know kind of mavericks as as 
they've been cast to be in this sport. Like Nick and Nate Diaz have kind of been ahead of the curve on a lot of different stuff that the sport has kind of come around to catch up with them on. And one of the things that they are known for over a long period of time is having terrific cardio and they are uh, triathletes. They do all kinds of different cross training that a lot of MMA fighters don't do. And so one thing you know about either of these guys is that every time they show up to fight, they're going to be in great shape and they're going to be ready to go 25 minutes at a really, really high pace. And uh, Nate Diaz had that. And so it was still dangerous in the last minute of this fight when he hit Leon Edwards with a pretty much a picture-perfect one-two combo and darn near knocked him out. <laughs> Had him stumbling all over the cage in big-time trouble. Wasn't able to finish him, so of course Leon Edwards wins the unanimous decision here. But, uh, you know, the, just that alone, that kind of performance from Nate Diaz probably sets him up for another big fight in the UFC if he wants to have one. Is the motivation here just staying around, or is it, is it just like Jalen Rose says, keep on getting them checks? Or I mean, what is what's keeping him going? Because like you said, he's lost three out of his last four, but his legend continues to grow. So I mean, is he ever going to be a, a contender again, or is he just in this as, as sort of a um, a promotional unit for the UFC? Yeah, it's hard to envision a scenario. I think where either Diaz brother would really contend for a title uh, at this stage in their careers because they are both sort of getting toward the end of it. Uh, But I mentioned a minute ago, these guys have always been ahead of the curve on a number of issues. And one of those issues has been getting paid. And one of the reasons that they don't fight that often is that Nick Diaz and Nate Diaz have no problem holding out as long as it takes for them to get either a fight that they like or to get paid the money that they want to get paid by the UFC. And, of course, more power to them because that's what this sport is all about. So these guys earn the big bucks. Uh, they're not going to take low-profile fights. In fact, I was kind of surprised Nate Diaz even took a Leon Edwards fight because Leon Edwards is an up-and-coming welterweight and a tough guy but doesn't have the kind of profile that you would expect a Diaz brother to fight. So from here on out, you know, uh, Nate Diaz, I think, has some interesting options. He can either stick around in the UFC, try to fight out his contract, uh, or the guys I know you're a big fan of that we talked about last time I was in here, the Paul brothers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, huge fan. When they asked Jake Paul who he wanted to fight next after he had knocked out Ben Askren in, in his boxing match, he said Nate Diaz. Hmm. He said he wanted to fight Nate Diaz. Uh, so that's also a possibility, and if the money is right, you got to think Nate Diaz would probably do it. There are a lot of hurdles that would have to be cleared between now and then, including the status of his UFC contract and what they wanted to let him go do. But uh, he'll do almost anything for money. Both these guys will if they're going to get paid enough. So the, the idea that Nate Diaz could show up toward the end of his career and have an exhibition boxing match against Jake or Logan Paul is probably not totally out of the question. Nuanez now, 1029 ESPN Missoula. I'm Coulter Nuanez. Chad Dundas joining me in studio talking all things UFC and MMA. In breaking news, this is awesome. This is actually, I think this is going to give you a little nostalgia too, Chad. We have a brand new studio sponsor. This is just happening right now in the middle of the live show. This is very great. So the uh, Nuanez now, ESPN Missoula studio sponsorship is now presented proudly by Northwest Motorsport. Northwest Motorsport, one of the great uh, Northwestern dealers of trucks. That's their slogan, trucks, trucks, and more trucks. They have a new location here in Missoula at the corner of Stevens and Mount. They're the largest independent dealership in the Pacific Northwest. They have over 1,500 vehicles in Missoula alone. NWMSRocks.com. That's NWMSRocks.com to check out all of the uh, variety of inventory that Northwest Motorsport has. But they are now the proud presenting sponsor of the Nuanas Now um, live radio show. They are the sponsor of our studio. So we're very proud and happy to have Northwest Motorsport on board. But I, I re- reference the nostalgic part of this, Chad, because if you've ever spent any time in Washington, which I'm not sure if you have, but um, th- the main spokesman for Northwest Motorsport forever and ever and ever is Jay Buner, Jay the Bone Buner, and uh, he always says, "Tell him the bone sent you." That's his big line with this. But I was thinking about Buner when we thought this this might be in the works, um, and I was thinking about his sort of reputation in this neck of the woods. Jay Buhner was a good player. He, he was, a, he was a, uh, a fine baseball player, a pretty good uh, career for the Seattle Mariners. But he had this uh, almost cult-like status for people in the Northwest, particularly Mariners fans. I mean, he was almost as popular as you know, Ken Griffey Jr. or, you know, a John Olroot or Brett Boone or some of these guys that were great stars for the Mariners. So, do you remember this phenomenon that was Jay the Bone Buhner? Of course I do. Are you sitting there right now telling me that you are a hair's breadth away from having Jay the Bone Buner 
on one is now. We might, yeah. I heard he resides now in Whitefish as well. Okay, there you go. You got to get this set up. We got to get it set up. Yeah, I think he's going to be doing some liners for us, which would be very uh, exciting as well. But we definitely have to. I, I was I participated in the uh, um, the Missoula Sports and Cards and Memorabilia Show over the weekend. And uh, I sorted through all my cards, but I made sure to make a special Jay Buhner page just because I knew there would be a fanatic out there that would really wanted some some Jay Buhner action. So um, that's exciting for us and also uh, a, a good piece of nostalgia for any Mariners fan out there because if you grew up in the Northwest or even into Montana here uh, during the mid-1990s, I, I guarantee you, you knew Jay Buhner and, and all those I'm not going to say great, but certainly memorable Mariners teams. That was the funniest part about those teams, right? Is they they had guys, they had talent, and they just it's just been what the Mariners have been doing for 30 years, just breaking our hearts over and over and over again. Who's your baseball team? Who's your pro baseball team? You know, when I was a kid, I was a Boston Red Sox fan because the great thing about growing up in Missoula, Montana, is that you just got to choose whoever you wanted and support them. We that, didn't that's right. Essentially, have that's a right. team. So that's right. I'm an Indians guy and a Vikings guy. Like those, I'm like, you don't have a team. It's just whoever maybe the the your parents' cable package lets you watch when you were. So for 10 whatever years old. reason, I signed on for the Red Sox, having no idea that I had. Uh, uh, <laughs> announced my allegiance to one of the most cursed franchises at that point in baseball history. No question. And just sort of like, you know, lived and died with them for a lot of years. And then when they eventually did break through and start to win World Series, uh, I was elated. And then at some point, some of the, I guess some of the shine started to come off for me. I can't even really explain it, but just that like they weren't the lovable losers anymore, man. They, oh, they for were, sure. They were like big, big money, high payroll yeah, New York Yankees. They style are. They're Yankees light. Machine. They became Yankees light. That's so unfortunate, considering that it was the greatest rivalry in all of sports. And now, it, I, I mean, I know it's still a fierce rivalry, but it. it, it I totally agree with you, though. It certainly lost its luster. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, I'm kind of a free agent fan wise. I also about uh, two decades ago made the unfortunate decision to get super involved in fantasy sports, <laughs> and that'll erode your your. Uh, your childhood fandom faster than anything. Oh, man. Because you're basically just rooting for your players and your own team. So uh, I'm still heavily involved with the fantasy baseball dynasty league that I'm in. And uh, uh, other than that, I don't have a ton of allegiance to a lot of uh, professional teams. And I, maybe you know this too, Colter, or you've experienced this, just like working in this industry, kind of being a sports writer, being a yeah. reporter, uh, of course, you are a human being. You carry your own allegiances, your own kind of like childhood memories and everything and that, everything else. But like, uh, it's another thing that will kind of, I don't want to say erode your personal fan feelings. It, no question does, though. But it does like make you look at it all in a different way. And so like, you know, having done this for such a long time now, uh, it, it's, it's just it gives me a different perspective on the whole thing. It's hard for me to really invest as a fan these days. Uh, at the professional level, at least, like uh, I still carry around fairly intense feelings for a lot of our local teams here, but that's that's kind of about it. Yeah, I mean, I have I, I say I say this on the show all the time. I have literally no fandom left besides for the Minnesota Vikings, and if they resign Kirk Cousins, that might also change as well. <laughs> but it's true though, and, and people ask me, well, they, you you probably got this all the time when you were being when you work in the newspaper, working in the Missoulian, or or covering you know local or regional sporting events. People always ask you who you're rooting for. You're like, well, nobody. I yeah. I really am not rooting for anybody, and people can't comprehend that. Like, why would you dedicate your life? to producing content about sports and you don't have the passionate rooting interest I have. And I always tell them, I don't at all. I root for the good stories. I want the good stories to play out. And that's what, that's what makes the best games are the games where no matter the result, the story is going to be good. That's why writing about um, the rivalry between Montana and Montana State, no matter what plays out, the story is going to be great. And yeah. so that's what makes it so fun to write about. But it's true. It does. It takes away a lot of uh, your rooting interest. We're going to get more into uh, dynamics like this here on Nuanas Now. Chad Dundas here in a little while. But a couple more thoughts on UFC 263, the big... Uh, showcase that took place over the weekend next one's what july 10th is that right so we're a couple couple weeks out still from ufc 264 yeah ufc 264 is going to be the third fight between conor mcgregor and dustin poirier uh they're going to settle their rivalry i suppose you could say uh the ufc does somewhat lower profile fight night events pretty much every week so there are actually like three ufc events between now and then but the next real high profile pay-per-view is ufc 264 on july 10th and it's going to be that uh, Poirier McGregor fight probably for number one contender status in the in the lightweight division. 
per the two, UFC 263, uh, one more thought on the Nate Diaz fight. Where does Edwards fit in the mix? I mean, you mentioned he's sort of an up-and-comer. Do you feel like he has a chance to ascend and, and be a true contender uh, in that division? Well, yeah, aside from that uh, no contest that he had against Bilal Muhammad in his last fight, which was in March of this year, the last time Leon Edwards lost a fight was December of 2015. It was a unanimous decision to a guy named Kamaru Usman, who you might know because he's the current UFC welterweight <laughs> champion. Yes. So, yeah, he's one does, of the scariest men on the earth. He is. And, and Leon Edwards does shape up as a. An interesting and kind of like fitting number one contender at some point. The UFC right now is holding pretty firmly to the fact that they're going to have Kamaru Usman uh, rematch with Colby Covington next. But Leon Edwards could be the number one contender after that. He might have to win one more fight. Right now, the odds on favorite would probably be a rematch with Muhammad because their last fight ended in that no contest due to an uh, inadvertent eye poke by Edwards. So that probably will be his next fight. But with a victory over Nate Diaz, uh, in theory, he's set up for, for something a little bit more high profile, too. So I think that there's an outside chance you could see something like Edwards versus uh, Jorge Masvidal at that weight. The... First of two final title fights of the night on Saturday features Brandon Moreno winning the, was it the flyweight title? Is that correct? Men's flyweight title. Uh, he, he becomes the first person from Mexico to win a UFC uh, title, which in itself is an amazing uh, stat and accomplishment because if you followed the history and lineage of Mexican sports, uh, other than soccer, boxing is certainly one of the great sports uh, the country of Mexico has produced athletes in. And so for that to be sort of uh, this breakthrough in the UFC, I think, is is huge for the popularity of the sport in the country. But also the way Moreno won, the fact that he did it as an underdog, and then the fact that uh, he had such a unbelievable and, and uh, such a humanizing reaction to his victory. It was very cool to watch. I mean, you could just tell this was absolutely the... Um, a dream coming true, right, right before anybody that w- ordered these fights' eyes, and it was a it was a cool moment, and I think it was a more human moment than maybe we see in a sport that is so violent. Yeah, Brandon Moreno kind of stole the show. He did, man. During this he totally pay-per-view. did. Uh, he, this is the guy you were texting me about, uh, right? The day after the event, so that's not necessarily what you would expect from a men's 125 pound title fight. Uh, but Brandon Moreno came out essentially schooled. The returning champion, Davis and Figueredo, in their rematch, won this thing by a third-round uh, submission via rear naked choke in a fight where Moreno just had all the answers for a guy in Davis and Figueredo who had been pretty dominant up to this point. Uh, it was a little bit of a weird performance from Figueredo, who cuts an awful lot of weight to make 125 pounds, and I think uh, if his next fight wasn't at bantamweight, up up a division at 135 pounds, I would be kind of surprised. Uh, but nonetheless, you can't take anything away from Brandon Moreno, who, as you mentioned, became the first Mexican-born UFC champion and the UFC has long hungered for uh, a Mexican-born champion. Their efforts to, to set somebody up in that position have cooled off a little in the last several years. They had just a disastrous effort to try to make Cain Velasquez, the former heavyweight right. champion, uh, a star in Mexico. They took him down to Mexico City. He did not show up in time to acclimate for the uh, the elevation. Right, lost his title to Fabricio Verdum in that fight, in which you know the UFC's best laid plans kind of blew up in its face. But now they have Brandon Moreno, and uh, if he became the guy who really established the UFC's foothold in Mexico would be kind of ironic because the flyweight division has long been a place of extremely, in my opinion, exciting and technically proficient fighters. Uh, The former champion there, uh, Demetrius Johnson, was during his reign probably the most technical and, you know, quote-unquote best MMA fighter on the planet for the time that he held that title, but nobody cared. They couldn't get anybody to watch the guy, and, like, it's always been kind of theorized that uh, fans didn't want to watch fighters that were this small. And the UFC almost hmm, cut bait from Flyway. They almost just eliminated it entirely wow. as a division. So if Brandon Moreno becomes a guy who is a star for them south of the border and can really get that uh, like notoriously fight-frenzied market fired up about the UFC, that would be kind of ironic because this wouldn't be the guy and this wouldn't be the place that you could expect it to come from. But as you said, just a whole lot of charisma on display from Brandon Moreno on Saturday night. So he could be that guy. We'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. Listen to Nuanas now, broadcasting live from the Northwest Motorsport Studio. That's Northwest Motorsport Trucks, 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 and more trucks. 
They have the biggest inventory anywhere in the Pacific Northwest. Chad Dundas joining me, Coulter Nuanas. It's 1029 ESPN Missoula. A couple things there that I thought was interesting that you just said. I guess I didn't really realize there was a non-affinity for the the small guy division. What's different then about these guys? I mean, why why do you think Moreno could be the guy that that not only carries the flag for his country but also sort of uh, saves what might have been an unappealing division? Um, that's a great question, and I think a lot of it might be intangible. Like sure. you know, you saw for yourself, the guy just has a great personality to go along with. Uh, this dominating performance he just turned in to win the title. It's long kind of been speculated just that mainstream fans, especially in America, didn't have a huge interest in watching the lighter fighters compete. Sure. And I, and I think some of it was a lack of stoppages, maybe the, uh, the notion that there's a lack of definitive answers in these lightweight divisions because a lot of them, a lot of those fights do go the distance. A lot of them are very right. close. There's a lot of split decisions, and so I think you know people have been kind of waiting for a finisher on the order of Conor McGregor, who came around uh, at 145 pounds in the featherweight division when he first won UFC gold and kind of was uh, the first real big crossover star at that weight. And a lot of it, of course, was that he was an easy sell to the people of Ireland. And the other part of it was that he was a, a really uh, powerful left-handed striker and he was knocking people out. So if Brandon Moreno can kind of be a finisher and if he can continue to, to like showcase that personality, I think there's a chance that he could become like a reasonably sized star in, in, in Mexico. The other thing I want to follow up on, you mentioned... Uh, the fact that uh, some of these guys, they cut a lot of weight before fights. Explain that to people a little bit because I think it's a, a little bit of a misperception, especially with MMA, especially with UFC. Some guys fight pretty close to what you'd say is their walking around weight, and other guys are significantly bigger than what they actually fight at. So how does that process work? Uh, it's different for everybody. There is an, uh, an attitude in MMA that I think in, in, in some ways is a holdover from amateur wrestling. Mm-hmm. You have so many amateur wrestlers coming into the sport that for a long time, the conventional wisdom said, cut as much weight as you possibly can, get into the lowest weight class that you possibly can, and thus gain a physical advantage over your opponent. You're right. just going to be bigger than they are. Uh, that attitude has started to change for some people over the last several years as there is emerging evidence to suggest that if you don't cut all that weight, that you might fare better on fight night because you won't have just depleted your body of uh, you know water and all everything else to try to make the weight. So there are there is this sort of like new wave of MMA fighter who doesn't cut a lot of weight, who fights a lot closer to their natural weight. Uh, but some of these guys are still cutting huge amounts of weight, shocking amounts of weight. I mean, like, I remember when Forrest Griffin was kind of in his prime. He would fight light heavy, which is a 205-pound weight class, but then they would say that he would walk around at 30-plus pounds heavier than that. Yeah. uh, I have talked to guys who fight at lightweight, so 155 pounds, who have told me off the record that when they are not in training, they weigh more than 200 pounds. That's crazy. So you have like a 200 pound man who gets into a training camp, he'll start his <laughs> diet, he gets down to you know, 190, 185, then he'll really start to ramp it up as the fight gets closer. Maybe he gets down to 175, 170, and then from there he'll cut 20 pounds on fight week, which is essentially just dieting and uh, you know, sauna, all the other kind of tricks that they use to totally dehydrate themselves. And that is a, just a tremendous amount of weight to cut. And Davison Figueredo at flyweight is one of these guys who's probably 150 pounds, 160 pounds when he's not engaged in a fight camp. And so for him to make 125 pounds is is a huge weight cut. And you might have seen it on Saturday night that maybe it depleted his energy. He kind of looked like he couldn't really get the, the car out of the driveway against Brandon Moreno. So uh, attitudes are changing on that, but but it is still a like kind of a... I guess I'll say ugly underbelly of the sport that guys are cutting that much weight to to make weight and go out and fight. It, it is fascinating. And it's something that I think we could hash out quite a bit more, but we won't because we have one more fight to get to. Chad Dundas joining me, Coulter Nuanas. Chad is the co-host of the Co-Main Event Podcast, one of the great MMA and UFC podcasts you'll find anywhere. So please go check that out. He's also a Missoula guy. We're going to get to our experiences in Missoula and, and sort of the overlay with the University of Montana from a sporting perspective uh, here in just a moment. But we have to touch on what was the main event of the night and the uh, the probably most prominent title fight of the night featuring Israel Adesanya, who defended his title for a third time. And this was the first time I got to sort of in-depth watch this guy 
fight. I don't really know what I had missed the boat on. I hadn't really, hadn't, I hadn't seen him in this sort of spotlight. I'd seen him fight before, but I hadn't been really analyzing it. But to watch him at the peak of his powers on Saturday night, wow, was I impressed. He is so athletic, and his reaction time and his ability to anticipate is quite honestly, peerless. I really can't think of another person, another fighter like him. And so I was just so impressed with him. It was almost effortless. His, his title defense was almost effortless. It almost actually probably is the reason why the people were mostly texting about Brandon Moreno and Nate Diaz and these other guys because Adesanya just made it look so easy. Yeah, he's a, a really, really high-level kickboxer who transitioned to MMA uh, back in 2012 and has been with the UFC since 2018. Uh, he's 21-1 overall and recently suffered, we talked about this last week when I was here, his first professional loss up a division. He moved up to light heavyweight to challenge Jan Blachowicz up there at 205 pounds for the title, and he ended up losing that fight. So now he came down to what is probably his more natural weight class at 185 pounds to have a rematch with Marvin Vittori on Saturday night and he just looked like he was back to his old self man just totally dominant in the cage uh, his movement is so good he's such a long lanky middleweight that it's hard for anybody to even get close to him and he just so effortlessly kind of mixes in strikes uh, his takedown defense is not perfect and Marvin Vittori was able to take him down a few times but he wasn't really able to do anything with it uh, Israel Adesanya was able to get back to his feet every time he did it and when he can have that kind of fight where he's able to dictate the range dictate the pace and dictate you know where the, the fight is contested it's almost impossible to beat him what did you think of the end of the fight the last couple rounds of the fight because Adesanya basically just took him apart from start to finish of the first three rounds and it was it was pretty clear that the fight was, it wasn't a formality, but it was pretty much that he had won the first three rounds, so he basically had won the fight, but yeah. there was two more rounds to fight, and, and Vittori sort of turned it into, uh, kind of ugly, pushing him up against the cage and just kind of taking the elbows to the ear, but Adesanya seemed very unimpressed by that. He basically threw a temper tantrum at the end, mocking uh, Vittori, and then during the press conference was... Uh, he didn't mince words. It basically was saying he didn't he didn't like it whatsoever. So what did you think of the, of the end of that fight? Well, these guys had had a little rivalry because they fought the first time back in 2018. Uh, Israel Adesanya won, but it was a split decision. And leading up to this fight, it was probably his closest middleweight fight in the UFC uh, of his career up to this point. And Marvin Vittori had talked a lot of trash, talking about how he thought he should have got the decision during their first fight in 2018. He thought he won that fight. And basically that he was going to go out and prove to everyone that he was the best middleweight weight in the world and that Israel Adesanya was was a bunch of hype. Uh, and I think Israel Adesanya took that personally. And so he pretty much dismantled Marvin Vittori's game plan throughout this fight. And in those last couple of rounds, I think you saw a lot of desperation from Vittori, but frankly, just like trying to turn it into the kind of fight he would have to have to win because he is not as talented of a striker as, as Israel Adesanya. And if he was going to win this, he was going to have to make it ugly. He was going to have to pin him up against the cage, win the clinch situations, take him down, beat him up on the ground, control the fight there, and, and probably win a decision. Uh, he couldn't do any of those things because Israel Adesanya was just too, too good for him. But I think when it was over, Adesanya had a, had a moment that he had, you know, by all rights probably earned of kind of, you know, uh, bearing his chest and saying, I don't know what you were talking about. This is my division. I've been here for a while now and nobody is as good as me and I just proved it all over again. Uh, he was also a little bit ticked off. It seemed like that immediately after the fight, he went across the cage to Vittori and said something to him along the lines of, this one wasn't that close. Like, you at least can acknowledge that I won this exactly. one. And Marvin Vittori said, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Let's wait for the, for the decision to be announced. Like, I could have won this thing, which obviously wasn't the case, but, and that just further kind of irked Israel Adesanya, and so yeah, he had some choice words for Marvin Vittori that we can't say on the radio. That's exactly right, and then he had some choice words as his sign-off from his press conference. I will leave out all the middle uh, adjectives as they were, but he said basically, I am the king, mic drop, and uh, it was quite the walk-off. I I guess I hadn't consumed his personality either, like you had talked about last week, Chad, and that, that was maybe the most uh, appealing part, because I do think that his background and his style and uh, his gracefulness w combined with his aggressiveness, he's a rising star. He's somebody that's going to be one of those crossover guys in the, in the UFC. And it breaks into mainstream pop culture, I think, especially if he continues to win. Chad Dundas joining us here on Nuanas Now. That's 
all we got right now for the UFC, but we will be uh, probably doing this one more time next month when the uh, UFC 264 rolls around. July 10th is the date of that, so a couple weekends away. But now, Chad and I both uh, grew up in Missoula. We both have went to the University of Montana, so we have uh, sort of a common background a uh, couple uh, years apart from each other. So I want to talk about just sort of the overlay of the way Missoula has changed uh, during our lifetimes and our times working as sports writers and, and sports journalists in this community. So we'll do that. Right here on Nuanas Now, 1029 ESPN Missoula, back after this. Sportsbet Montana is powered by the Montana Lottery. Join in on the excitement for Sportsbet Montana by betting on your favorite sports and teams, both collegially and professionally. There are multiple ways to bet, including in-game, which gets you into the action live as the game unfolds, and parlay betting, where you could have a chance to win big. Sportsbet Montana is a secure and interactive way to win while watching your favorite sports. Bets can be placed securely on the mobile app while at an authorized Sportsbet Montana location or by using the Sportsbet Montana kiosk located at approved vendors. Montana bettors have wagered more than $28 million since Sportsbet Montana launched almost a year ago, and in that time, bettors have won more than $25 million. Sportsbet Montana's retail partners have more than $1.7 million in commission. Head on down to your authorized Sportsbet Montana locations and get in on the fun today. Montana. Welcome back in. You're listening to Nuanez Now, broadcasting to you live from the Northwest Motorsport Studio. Browse over 1,500 vehicles at nwmsrocks.com. That's nwmsrocks.com. Northwest Motorsports has the largest inventory of any independent dealership in the entire Pacific Northwest. Chad Dundas joining me, Coulter Nuanas, here on this Tuesday. And happy so much that you are hanging out with us as well. Maybe you're watching in SWX Montana Television. If you want to listen to the show live and you're not near a radio, you can do it on your mobile device, your cell phone, your platforms, any of that stuff that streams. Just go to 1029ESPN.com, click on Listen Live, and you'll find the stream. Want to get a hold of us? Call in, shoot us a text, whatever you got. If you want to give us some perspective, from your seat, if you by chance live in Western Montana or you are a Missoula native, we're going to have a discussion here, sort of about the evolution of Grizz sports, along with the evolution of Missoula and what's sort of taken place over the last 25 years, both the rise and fall and potential resurrection of several proud uh, programs in this community that also have had influence. If you want to get involved in that conversation, give us a call eight 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 one zero two nine. Or you can shoot us a text as well, 406-888-1029. I'll guest join us with the Rangish Brothers RV phone line. Chad Dundas joining me in studio. He's a Missoula native. Were you born here? So you, you were born and raised in, in Missoula. So uh, I was not born here, but I went for to all my schooling here, kindergarten through uh, college and left for a while. And I've been back now for four years, and it's been uh, great to be back in my hometown, great to be doing this job uh, from this seat. But uh, one thing that has irked me uh, since my return to Missoula, and I guess my return to Montana in, in 2011, and then my return to Missoula back in 2017, has been um, so the turmoil that the University of Montana has gone under. Chad and I were both... Uh, lucky enough to go to uh, one of the most solid and uh, in cer- certain measures most prestigious journalism schools that you'll find and uh, the University of Montana Journalism School is one of if not the best and most prestigious programs that the uh, university offered for quite some time and it, it produced a ton of great uh, pretty much ready-made professionals people that were ready to hit the ground running and like our professors used to always tell us uh, you will be a leader in the newsroom that you walk into, even if you are uh, just a rookie or somebody that's just getting started out, because they just made us do it. They made us do it, uh, the practice of the craft of journalism over and over and over again. And it was a phenomenal education. But it's made me very sad to see what's happened to the University of Montana. Uh, I do have some uh, confidence and optimism that um, they will get this thing turned around. They can fix this enrollment crisis that they're experiencing. Uh, but it's also been interesting to watch the journalism program. I remember when I was first applying to be a, a student at the J School, uh, hundreds of applicants, and they were accepting, I think, 25 people per year to get into the print program at that time. 
They didn't even have 25 applicants a couple years ago, last time I checked in down there. The school has since been uh, absorbed into the media arts portion of the university. So it's been a sort of a confluence of circumstances, but also something that's been sort of tough to deal with because I know it's something that I have a great deal of pride in and something that meant a lot to me and still means a lot to me to this day. But Chad, as somebody that's lived on again, off again in Missoula, what is your perspective just as a whole of the University of Montana? Um, it's been a little bit hard to watch, I think, like as you, uh, you know, intimated just to watch the decline in enrollment and this and the the steps that they've taken over there to, to streamline the budget and, and compile a bunch of schools under the same banner that sometimes I feel like seems like it works. And sometimes it, it's it's a little bit of a head scratcher what what they think the new organizational system is going to do besides maybe relieve some pressure on the on the budget. Uh, I guess on the positive side of things for the journalism school, it seems like they're still turning out an awful lot of good journalists. They are. Because I still see, uh, you know, people come out and go work on the on the national scale, uh, you know, covering the Lakers, covering Oregon, covering these big-time programs. And so uh, there, there are still good people coming out of that school. But I remember when I was in school there working on the Cayman, uh, we were always a top 10 or top 20 college newspaper in the nation. No question. And we would be right up in there, you know, uh, competing, so to speak, with programs like um, Michigan, where they're getting a $50 uh, fee from every student at the University of Michigan. They're just dealing with uh, money that we couldn't even dream of having right. uh, there in Oregon and Northwestern and all these other places. Uh, and we were always right there with them nationally, at least according to the uh, you know, accreditors and the the contest that we would enter and stuff like that. And we took a lot of pride in it at the time. Uh, but I guess you don't, you know, you don't really realize any of that stuff until you're looking at it in retrospect. It's like, true. As all that stuff has happened and it just seemed normal. It seemed like we were, we were doing what we were doing and it didn't even really seem that, uh, that exceptional, you know, but, but you look back on it and you, and you start to realize that, you know, you were super privileged. I was super privileged to go to school with, with so many other good journalists who went on to do amazing things in the, in the, on the national scene. I mean, I remember the sort of local and then regional competition, both within other student newspapers, but also specifically just battling in a friendly way, but battling with the Missoulian, especially from a sports perspective, you were always trying to scoop the Missoulian or write the feature that people were reading. And, and I mean, the Kaiman was a, a big deal and game day Kaimans were, were really, really well read. And, uh, it is interesting to see, too, you know, you mentioned the guys you worked at the Cayman with. A lot of them have risen to great heights. Kevin Van Valkenburg, who's a, a Missoula guy as well, who's now one of the prominent uh, golf writers in the country. Uh, Ryan Divish, who covers the Seattle Mariners now for the Seattle Times, who's done a great job covering them for both between the Tacoma News Tribune and and the Seattle Times. And, and you know, like the guys on my staff, you mentioned some of the guys, not by name, but you know, Bill Orem, who was uh, the editor-in-chief of the Cayman, actually my senior year, but we worked in the sports together for a couple years, and he's covering the Los Angeles Lakers now for the Athletic and Tyson Alger who I worked with is now covering the Oregon Ducks uh, for the Athletic and uh, Roman Stubbs working at the Washington Post I mean these these guys achieved at a very high level so we're not sitting here trying to toot our own horns about the UMJ school and the education we received but it was a very great one and it does make me a little sad just because I think that the one of the primary ways that kids are choosing colleges now is simply by Googling starting salary of said job. <laughs> what jobs, okay, I might be a little bit good at math. Okay, starting salary of civil engineer, of, of mechanical engineer. Bam. Okay, you have five or six numbers there with multiple commas, and it's looking pretty good. And then you Google print journalism, newspaper journalism, and you're sitting here thinking, well, do I, can I really afford to make less than I would working at the drive-thru to <laughs> grind it out of a newspaper? I do think that part... Is unfortunate, but I also I, I've you know I've taught classes down there at the J School and, and at, on campus, and I've thought about it a lot. And I tell people that that education was invaluable because of its ability to teach you how to network, to have high expectations for yourself, and to talk to people and to write. And I think that if you have perspective where you're not getting pigeonholed into a starting salary journalism job, you can use the degree uh, and, and make something completely different. I mean, I never thought I was going to be doing ESPN radio and selling advertising and running a multimedia company that's based on both subscription revenue and having to run a whole business. I never thought that was going to be the case, but I'm so happy to do it. And the education set the stage for that. And you've sort of done similar things, right? I mean, the fact that you worked in newspapers, but also have dived into the the 
new age, quote unquote, uh, world of journalism, but also sort of the old school way of doing it by writing books as well. I mean, so I guess what I'm saying is it just takes perspective to realize that if you get a, a world class education, you can use it to your benefit, even if you're not directly doing what you intentionally planned. Yeah, I'll tell you what uh, what my master plan was. I started out as an undergrad in English creative writing, and I did a year or two of that, and then I was like, you know what? I should learn a trade so that right. when I graduate from school, I can get a job that will pay me some money. And so my brilliant idea was to go into journalism. <laughs> and so I crossed over and became a journalism major and graduated with a bachelor in journalism. Uh, and then everything about the media industry completely changed seemingly overnight but within like you know 10 years of my graduation it was just a different a different world man when i was at the Cayman, we were still pasting up the paper on blue grid sheets with a waxer and a printer and then at five o'clock in the morning a woman would come get those giant pages and take them to the printer and they would take a photograph of it and that's how they would print it I, when I first started at the Cayman, my very first beat was Lady Grizz beat. I was a, a sophomore in college. It was 2006. And I used to call Robin Selvig on his office phone and then take notes by hand. And that was as fancy as the technology was getting. And this was not that long ago. Here's the irony of it. You have to write, uh, for mo- I, I don't know if you had, guys had to do this, but you have to write a like a senior thesis, basically, like a paper uh, to ca- to pass one of the capstone classes about some sort of theory of the media industry or whatever. My paper was about the influence of the internet on the world of sports journalism. And I interviewed guys like Jay Mariotti and Jay Adande and Woody Page and um, several uh, editors from Sports Illustrated. And they all said, oh, newspapers are, are going to dominate forever print is where it's at. And this is only 12 or 13 years ago. Yeah. And never did I think that, I remember we, uh, I was on the staff of the Montana Journalism Review and our theme for the year was um, the future of media because it was the 50th anniversary. And we had a model of, uh, on the cover, Jerry Brown, the old uh, dean of the J school was over here and he was an old guy with a big gray beard at the time. And he's sitting there on his typewriter. And then we had this other model who, was the sort of the personification of the new age journalist holding a camera around her neck. She has all these voice recorders and cords and all these things that they were telling us that we were going to probably need. And I was like, dude, I'm never going to need that. If I have a cell phone, a credit card, a pencil and a notebook, I am fine. And now Tommy will attest to this. I have a life completely run by cords. Like when we went to Indianapolis for the NCAA tournament, I had a whole skeleton case full of a radio in a box within every laptop charger and voice recorder charger. And it's just so crazy. And this is only 10 years that this has happened. It's been so rapid, the evolution of it all. Yeah, it's just a completely different world, I think, than what we imagined when we first came out of school. But, uh, you know, it's 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 been one we've had to adapt to, but also... Uh, I'm sure that a lot of us kind of hunger or feel nostalgic for those old kind of newspaper days, but the uh, there's so much possibility now. Oh, no question. And so I mean, much- we can write stories and deliver them to people on their phone that they have in their pocket. They can read the story three seconds after I print it on the on the internet. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I like like I told you last week, I've been doing a podcast for nine years. Right. And when I graduated from college, that was a thing that didn't exist. So. Uh, it's been different than we expected, but also like it's been somewhat fun to kind of ride the wave, I guess. Enough about us. <laughs> We're going to talk about the University of Montana and as a whole and the way that it's evolved both from our uh, non-overlapping times with the Missoulian and also just the way that this whole thing has evolved in, through the lens of the athletic department down at the University of Montana. So keep it right here, 1029 ESPN Missoula. Chad Dundas joining me, Coulter Nuanas, back after this. After a long couple of months, it's finally feeling like we're getting back to business as usual. But it's not the usual at all. At Missoula's Wingate, we are, as always, committed to giving you a relaxing stay at a great value. But we're also balancing the new guidelines, like maximum pool occupancies and increased disinfecting, to protect your health with a never-ending pledge to make you feel at home when you're not. If you find yourself on the road in the Missoula area, please consider staying with us at Missoula's Wingate. Welcome back. Nuana is now 1029 ESPN Missoula. SWX Montana Television. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. 
on your Tuesday. I'm Coulter Nuanez. Chad Dundas, kind enough to join me for the first hour of this show. This is the second time in a week, so it's been fun having Chad in here, catching about all things UFC, as well as uh, now a continued conversation about our backgrounds from the city of Missoula, as well as uh, our uh, affiliation with the University of Montana, and then what that has meant for both of us as sports writers uh, cutting our teeth. So let's talk about that element of it, Chad. I, it was uh, very interesting to be a young journalist, uh, both at the Montana Cayman and then the Missoulian, uh during the time that I was there, because uh, first of all, the athletic director at Montana at the time was Jim O'Day. He's always been a close family friend of mine. He's become a very good friend of this show and uh, has co-hosted with me uh, pretty consistently here uh, in recent months. And that's been great to reconnect with Jim. Uh, but that was obviously uh, an in at the athletic department for me. Uh, but also then there was uh, some of the most hardcore and uh, in a lot of ways hard to deal with coaches, especially when you're 19 and 20 years old. Robin Selvig couldn't have been better. Uh, he was so gracious all the time with all this time, but he also taught me so much because if you ask Coach Selvig a dumb question, he tells you right out the gate. But Bobby Halk and Larry Kostowiak, uh, and then Wayne Tinkle, obviously uh, large personalities to deal with as well. But it's been fascinating to see the evolution of Grizz Athletics, uh, the rise and the domination from the mid-90s all the way through uh, the first decade of the 2000s to then uh, some hard times that have been sort of overlaid with the struggles of the university as a whole, uh, some scandal uh, that has gone along that have been directly tied to specifically the football program, but also athletics as a whole. And then now uh, this attempt, at least, at getting back to what was um, an almost unprecedented reign of glory. I think I, in 2006 to 2008, uh, the Grizz... Men's and women's basketball teams went to the NCAA tournament and the football team played in the national championship game. And I believe that that set Montana apart from every other Division I school in the country in terms of having all of their revenue programs basically competing at their highest possible level. So, uh, Chad, as somebody that uh, covered this right uh, until the explosion and then in the midst of the explosion as well in terms of uh, the rise of Grizz Athletics, what is your perspective on this, uh, the, the way that Grizz Athletics has evolved over these last 20, 25 years? Well, right now, I think with Bobby being back and, you know, for all intents and purposes or as near as we can tell here, headed into... What are we moving into here? Year three on the field? This will be their third season, his fourth year at the helm, yes. And all uh, indications are that he is in the midst of, of rebuilding a juggernaut. Yep. Like I, I've, I, I sound like a broken record to myself because I say this all the time, but I feel like they have a chance to be really good next year. They do. Uh, and, and I feel like it's an absolute testament to the Montana Grizzly football program that you can endure essentially a decade of instability, which really goes back kind of like the first time Bobby left because mm-hmm. they brought Robin Flugrad in. He was only here for a couple years. Then we did the like uh, Mick Delaney era and then Bob Stitt. And all, all of those coaches tried to change the personality of the team, sometimes multiple times for sure during their individual tenures. And so to think that the program can be seemingly on the doorstep of competing for national titles and Big Sky Conference championships again now is almost unbelievable. And I think underscores the, the strength of the tradition and like the, uh, the strength of the recruiting base more than anything else. And I think you got to give Bobby Houck a lot of credit for getting things back together as quickly as he has. But that that decade of instability would have killed some programs. No question. They wouldn't have been able to come back from it. And the fact that as Montana Grizzly fans, and I count myself among them because I, at this point I'm just a, a fan. I don't cover the team professionally anyway. For us to like expect that team to make the playoffs and win conference titles and compete for national championships during that decade was kind of delusional. <laughs> That's the best part about Grizz fans, though, right? And it's amazing that they were as good as they were over that time period, and the fact that they have appeared to just flip a switch and kind of get back to it is an unbelievable story to me. It, it absolutely is, because you, you factor in the instability among the coaches, as you talked about. Not only uh, four different, five different coaching changes, including when Bobby Houck left in 2009, but then you also talk about Guys that are distinctly different in both their personalities in terms of the coaches, the, the coaching staffs, the philosophies, the schemes, all of it. But then you tag uh, NCAA violations and uh, an on-campus scandal 
And then you also tag the institutional momentum that has then parlayed into excellent momentum from a football and athletic department standpoint from Montana State. And all of those things still resulted in the Grizz having their worst football decade in three decades, which still included five playoff bursts and 78 victories. So it's an amazing thing that shows you just the strength of the foundation. Now, the naysayers and the cynics would argue, well, they're playing in the Big Sky Conference. Uh, You should be able to dominate. And I am actually among that line of thought in certain ways because... Southern Utah, Northern Colorado, and Idaho State just aren't the same as Montana. It's not the same. But the number one factor I think is so important for Grizz football specifically, but also it influences the entire athletic department as a whole, is the number one most delusional Grizz fan on planet Earth is one Bobby Houck. (laughs) He truly believes that the destiny of the Grizzlies is to go undefeated forever and to win all of the national championships. He truly expects that. That is what his expectation of excellence is. And I think that that's, to me, you can talk about the scandal, the declining enrollment, you can talk about the coaching changes, all the stuff. To me, the number one intangible factor that went away from the time Bobby Houck left and the time Bobby Houck returned is that unwavering expectation of excellence. And I think that's why you see this. It's not as if Helena Capital or Kalispell Glacier or Drummond, Montana are producing uh, more or better players. They're not. In fact, they're producing about the same as they always have. Bobby Houck just gets the guy from Anaconda, Montana to run through the brick wall for him. He gets the guy you know, from wherever he might be, small town, who comes up and becomes a star. He's able to develop those guys. But more than anything, it's just the fact that he holds, uh, I think that his level of expectation for the football team in general is higher than maybe anybody in the entire world. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we would be friends. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, <laughs> you and Bobby. <laughs> he, was not, he was not an easy person to cover. Uh, back during his first stint here when I like had a, a very ancillary role covering sure. Grizzly football at the Missoulian. Uh But now that I'm purely a fan, I have to say, I chuckle to myself when I hear him go on uh, the Grizz fan podcast. Shout out, by the way, to Brent Wahlberg and those guys out there. And they asked him what he thinks about the FCS spring schedule. And he was like, well, if the Montana Grizzlies aren't playing, it's not a real championship. Right. So I hope they're having fun. That's right. Uh, I chuckle to myself. I, I can appreciate what's happening over there these days. It, 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 it is pretty funny, man, because it is it is part of a shtick, but there it is an authentic one. And that's, I think, what makes it uh, resonate so much with Montana people. It, it is funny because I covered Coach Houck when I was at the Cayman uh, during sort of the height of it. And the year uh, after I graduated was then the year that he got into the big spiff with the Cayman and then earned national headlines. We don't need to... So we don't need to rehash all of that because it was an ugly and also just sort of silly moment in the history of Grizz Athletics. But I will say, covering him as a uh, 34-year-old man and not a 19-year-old kid was um, it has been quite an experience because it's, it's totally different. And I think that he has respect for uh, what we do here, and uh, he's always very good with us with his time. The thing is, Bobby just doesn't want, he just doesn't suffer fools. He just, like he tells me, man, he gives me a one-on-one on Tuesdays before practice, and he says, come prepared to get five or six questions. I'm going to give you five or six minutes, make them good questions, and we'll roll. Great. And he's always good. He's always really good with us. So it is funny, though, the way that things like that evolve. The athletic department as a whole, though, Chad, what do you think of uh, that? Because I think that uh, on one hand, the men's basketball program is uh, kept churning along. They've been... Uh, I guess the last year was a little bit of a down year, but five Big Sky Championships in the last 10 years, a perennial conference title contender, both at the regular season and tournament levels. But on the other hand, I don't really remember the Lady Grizz ever losing when we were growing up or when we were in college, and they've lost a lot over the last several years. So what do you think of just the athletic department as a whole, particularly concerning the other uh, quote-unquote revenue sports? Yeah, uh, Travis DeKeer seems like an amazing coach, frankly. Right. Uh, It seems like he's done an incredible job uh, during his time there as the coach of the men's basketball team, and I think that they'll be lucky to keep him as long as they possibly can. Uh, And you're right about the, the women's team, the Lady Grizz, like, were such a fixture when we were kids uh, that, you know, they've they've experienced, again, some, like, turmoil in the program that, that can be hard for those programs to weather. And uh, now with the new guy coming in, I think that they it, it's going to be interesting to sit back and, and watch what happens. Uh, because you know you've had all of the the turn turnover in terms of players and roster and things like that 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 I think is pretty uh, 
normal for when a new coach comes in and tries to establish a new culture and a new system and all that stuff. I think it's ruffled some feathers, but I also think uh, he has a great pedigree. And like if he, if he can turn it around and they uh, start winning games and are back to where they were, you know, during Robin's hey, heyday, uh, I th- I think they'll be back. I think I just think that you know the fans will, will continue to come and then they'll be back. The support, the passion, and the resources are all gigantic advantages, and I think that that's one of the reasons why it is fair to criticize um, when these teams aren't elite at this level, and uh, I think that's what we try to do around here is be fair, uh, but also uh, give credit where credit's due. So it, it will be fascinating to see it all evolve, but I do think that in terms of the leadership that is installed now with the three main programs, as well as, by the way, one piece of news we had not announced, Clint May, who was the interim track and field coach, he was named the full-time track and field coach uh, recently, so congratulations to Coach May. He's been on this show a couple times, and uh, he's got a great background and uh, outstanding lineage in terms of high school track and field. He was the uh, director of high school track and field at Bozeman High School and uh, built one of the great cross-country dynasties in the history of the state of Montana. So he knows how to win at a high level at that level, and so best of luck to him moving forward. But regardless, I do think that there's an opportunity here. I think if Montana can seize some form of institutional momentum, that could then uh, help spur on the athletic department. But it also seems like the athletic department is finally in a position again for the first time in, I'd say, 10 years to actually lead the charge in terms of that. Maybe the athletic department could be the ones that helps Montana sort of right the ship in terms of getting more students on campus. Yeah, I think it was uh, it was probably a driver the first time around, you know. Um, and so... And it does seem like they're going to need kind of all hands on deck to get the enrollment situation turned around. And and it wouldn't hurt to have a basketball team and a football team and a women's basketball team who are on national TV every now and then winning games and and making Missoula look like a good place to be. Chad Dundas, thanks so much for coming in, man. This was fun. You bet. Anytime. Nuana is now 102.90 SPN Missoula, SWX Montana Television, Hour 1 in the books. Hour 2 coming at you. Treasure State Stars, highlighting some of the best performances uh, in the recent week that was from athletes from around the state of Montana. A little NFL talk, Jeff Safford from the Missoula Paddleheads. But first and foremost, I got a bone to pick with Tommy. Keep it right here at 1029 ESPN Missoula. Get commencement ready at the Montana State Bookstore, your best place for blue and gold on game day or any other day. Their grad fair sale is going on right now if you visit msubookstore.org. Free regalia? When you purchase a diploma frame at the MSU Bookstore, you can obviously visit the MSU Bookstore on the Montana State campus. The Montana State Bookstore, your best place for blue and gold on game day or any other day. Visit on campus or at msubookstore.org. 